Before starting this week's episode, I just wanted to let you know that Papa PhD is a few weeks away from its first birthday. To end this first season, these next three weeks I will be running a science communication special where I'll be bringing you, in podcast form, the three parts of a roundtable I moderated in May of this year. In it, my three guests, Adriana Bankston, Joana Lobantunj and Monica Feliu-Moher, share their experiences living and working through the COVID-19 pandemic, and, based on their insights, we discuss how the scientific community can contribute to the discussion at the community, at the academic and at the policy level. So, if the role of scientists outside academia interests you, sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Welcome everyone here. Uh, I'm super happy to be here today discussing the role of the scientific community in today's uh, uh, situation, which is the, the COVID pandemic. We're going to talk about all the challenges that uh, that society and the scientific community has faced uh, during this crisis, and what solutions uh, also have been uh, have been working so far, what hasn't been working, and at different levels. Um, I'm going to start by uh, reading a little introduction, and then I will uh, also introduce uh, the guests who are here. In the wake of the worldwide spread of SARS-CoV-2, these last few weeks have seen world leaders sending out mixed messages and trying to trace a path on a moving terrain with questions like social distancing, wearing of masks and lockdown. On another front, while doctors, epidemiologists and virologists have been working around the clock to understand COVID-19 and take control of the pandemic and to advise politicians and policy deciders, We've seen a movement of disinformation and conspiracy theories that has been gaining traction and visibility with video content circulating and passing on fake news that is tricking the general public into lending it a credibility that it doesn't deserve. In our live discussion today, we are going to talk about the challenges this pandemic has faced the scientific community with. We are going to discuss what role researchers and the scientific community at large can play during a world crisis such as this one. And we are going to try and get uh, a wide-angle view of how the scientific community has been impacted at the policy level, at the level of universities, and at the community level. To discuss these issues today, I have with me Dr. Adriana Bankston, Dr. Joanne Loeb-Antunj, and Dr. Monica Feliu-Moher. Dr. Adriana Bankston is a principal legislative analyst at the University of California Office of Federal Governmental Relations in Washington, D.C. Prior to this position, she was a policy and advocacy fellow at the Society for Neuroscience, where she provided staff support for special and ongoing projects, including SFN's annual lobby event and the Society's annual meeting. In addition to working at UC, Adriana also serves as the Director of Communications and Outreach for the Journal of Science Policy and Governance, JSPG, and is an associate member of the Public Policy Committee with the American Society for Cell Biology. 
For the past several years, Adriana has also been an active member in the non-profit organization Future of Research, where she's currently the vice president and has previously served as the associate director of fundraising and strategic initiatives. Adriana received her bachelor's in biological sciences from Clemson University and her PhD in biochemistry cell and developmental biology from Emory University. Welcome to this roundtable, Adriana. Thank you for having me, David. It's my pleasure. Now, uh, we also have around the table uh, someone from Portugal, Dr. Joana Lobo Antunes. Uh, Joana Lobo Antunes is head of communications at Instituto Superior Técnico and Engineering Faculty at the University of Lisbon in Portugal. She is lecturer in science communication and social media for scientists uh, in the Nova University uh, in Lisbon. She's also coordinator of a science radio show called 90 Seconds of Science, also in Portugal, uh, and founder and current president of the Portuguese Science Communicators Network, SciComPT. Joana has previous experience as a researcher, PhD in organic chemistry, and as a university professor, having transitioned to a position as a professional science communicator at Universidade Nova de Lisboa in 2012. Her main interests are the use of theater improvisation techniques and storytelling in science communication. Joana also has been engaging scientists to use social media tools to connect and interact with peers and laypersons, improving science visibility and the public image of scientists. Welcome, Joana. Thank you, David. It's very nice to be here with us. Great panel, and you. Thank you. I, I'm really eager to to uh, have a, everyone start talking, but uh, there's one person uh, who I still need to introduce, who is Dr. Monica Feliu Moher. Monica uh, uses cultura to connect underserved communities with science. As a science communicator, she draws on her training, a PhD in neurobiology, personal background, and culture a woman from rural Puerto Rico to make science relevant and relatable, especially to Puerto Ricans and Latinos. Dr. Feliu Moher understands the importance of storytelling and using a cultural lens to empower people and change stereotypes about science and scientists. To do this, for the past 14 years, she has led multiple science communication efforts, from publishing a book, to producing short films, to training scientists in culturally relevant science communication with the non-profits Ciencia Puerto Rico and iBiology. Welcome, Monica. I'm really happy you could make space in your busy schedule to be here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you all. So the first thing I would like to do uh, now that we're all here and, uh, and uh, that uh, we're live is that I would like to hear uh, how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected you and your professional day-to-day -day at the present time. What has changed since the pandemic was declared? And uh, to start, I'm going to ask Monica. I know you're in an all-hands-on-deck situation down there, from what we, we've talked before, uh, collaborating with Puerto Rican scientists and media daily. Uh, can you share with us the issues you're dealing with and uh, the solutions you've been finding so far? Yeah, um, to answer your first question, um, I've, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm running an Ironman every day. Um, so it's, it's been incredibly busy. Um, I, I lead communications for Ciencia Puerto Rico, which is a nonprofit that brings together anyone with an interest in, in science in Puerto Rico and, and taps into the collective knowledge of that community to, to create social impact through science communication, through education, and through, um, professional development for young scientists. And, 
um, since the pandemic began, our community has been very, very active in addressing different challenges in, in Puerto Rico from misinformation. Uh, we're collaborating with the media, different media outlets in, in Puerto Rico and, and beyond to publish op-eds, to publish articles, to connect scientists, to do radio, TV, written press interviews. Um, we've also been doing a lot of advocacy um, to nudge the government of Puerto Rico to use science to drive their decision and, and policy making during this pandemic. Um, we've been also addressing um, challenges in terms of testing in Puerto Rico. There's been, I mean, there's been issues with testing, uh, certainly across the United States, of which Puerto Rico is, is a colony. Um, but in Puerto Rico, there's been a shortage of testing. Testing Tests are not being used properly. And so we're very engaged in promoting proper use of tests and also in increasing the capacity of, of testing, particularly the molecular PCR testing that detects the, the virus. And finally, we've also been engaged in several education initiatives to support the continuity of, of education because as we know, children are, are not going to school and their education has been interrupted. Yeah, at this point, I'm going to say that I have my two uh, my two kids at home with me. So if uh, listeners out there hear some background noise, it's going to be them. I think a lot of us are living this reality uh, of having children at home because schools are closed. We're going also to talk later about universities that are closed uh, uh, and uh, because that's also a big issue because there's research out there and research is important for the, the pandemic. So I just wanted to, to, to mention that if, if there's uh, some extraneous noises. But the important point, uh, the, the, the important thing that I would like uh, uh, to hear uh, is also you know what because i feel from the conversation we we've, we've had before that you you have your pulse on what's happening on the streets in in puerto rico in terms of the difficulties that people are uh, are having understanding the right guideline or the uh, understanding the guidelines well applying them can you talk a little bit about that what are you seeing on the streets that is not helping with the pandemic well, I think, I mean, overall, all things considered, I think the, the people of Puerto Rico have been incredibly graceful and they've been doing great in terms of, you know, following orders to stay at home. Puerto Rico, in the context of the United States, they were the first jurisdiction to to establish uh, very strict stay-at-home orders. And, um, you know, by this point, people have been, there's still a... Um, a curfew in place until mid-June and, and people have been under curfew and some form of curfew for over 70 days at this point. Um, and, you know, I'd say the people of Puerto Rico have responded really well. One of the issues that I see is, of course, you know, there's a lot of misinformation that's um, making the rounds on, on social media, but even on, on traditional media, even from... Um, from government officials. Um, last week, we had our, our Secretary of Health um, wrongfully say that getting infected with uh, the, this coronavirus would be similar to getting a vaccine, which is absolutely not true. It's very different to get infected than getting a vaccine. Um, and so unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation 
Um, the government has a serious credibility issue, which is a big problem when you're trying to get the, you know, the population needs to trust you as, as the government um, in order for them to follow uh, instructions that are designed to, to protect their health. Um, and so there's, there's been, I would say there's been misinformation um, and there's a problem with credibility, but there's also on behalf of the government, there's certainly been um, the, the guidance hasn't always been communicated properly or some, in some cases it hasn't really been science based. Hmm. Yeah, th that's, that's definitely serious because, you, you know, people, will look at, at the, the governing bodies and, and the, the people who are ahead of all of these uh, big uh, organizations or governmental organizations as people who know, who are in the know and who will, you know, give the right information. And if they, uh, they're, not, uh, they're not disseminating the right information, we have a problem for sure. Right. And, and, and on top of that, I, I'll, add, I'll just briefly add that because of, of um, Puerto Rico's political relationship with the United States, it's, it means that we're under U.S. regulations. And, 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 and frankly, the response from the federal government has also been lackluster. It's interesting. I do have some questions for Joana uh, later on on the Portuguese example, but I'll, I'll leave them for when the moment comes. But uh, th this is an important point, which is how can the scientific community uh, interact with government, uh, with government bodies to bring you know the, the right messaging to the public and to uh, to be able to uh, put the brakes on on things that are you know just blatantly wrong we've heard a bunch of them in the last few weeks uh, about uh, hydroxychloroquine for example um, monica just just a question still for you uh, apart from from this statement which is really really uh, disturbing that uh, herd immunity is equivalent to uh, to uh, vaccination Uh, what other um, maybe uh, mis misinformation have you seen circulating? There's this uh, this documentary out there that is really damning and that that has a high production value, I'd say. So someone who's you know less informed will look at that, and it it seems like something that is coming from a bona fide source. What's making the rounds there in terms of misinformation that you've seen, and that's really disturbing. I mean, there are different types of misinformation from, um, you know, treatments to ways to avoid um, infection. Um, you know, one thing I will say is that nowadays there's like this documentary that you're, you're mentioning. Um, there is there, a lot of misinformation is wrapped in, in half-truths. And some of the people that are spreading misinformation they're in positions of power um, and they're, they're using very sophisticated tactics saying like a scientist from this university said this. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important to understand that because we are in very uncertain and scary times, people are searching for certainty. Humans want certainty. And so it is very difficult. And so sometimes it can be extremely hard to determine whether or not something we're seeing on social media is, is true or not, because the way that these things are framed really play into our human nature and the way our brains work, 
um, in the way that, you know, we want certainty that we're scared of change or, or, or novelty. So I think it is important for people to understand that people, you know, most people are not consuming misinformation because they want to believe things that are false. It is coming from a fact that it, it is uncertain. People are scared and they're searching for something, you know, they're searching for something that's confirming their values, what they believe in. Um, and so I think it is important that we understand that. And then it's also important that we have, you know, certain um, easy rules in mind. You know, if you see something that you're like, oh, this like creates a very strong emotion. Like I read it and it, I'm like, yeah, this is absolutely true. How dare these people do this? You know, take a moment and question the information that you're reading. Just, just question what, why, you know, how, who is this person um, saying this? Where is this information coming from? What is the source? Um, you know, we have to really apply our, our skepticism because um, there's, these are, you know, these are unprecedented and, and uncertain times. Um, and everybody has a responsibility to question what they're That's seeing. That's true, and I do want to talk later on on uh, the role of educating the, the new, the upcoming generations of citizens, and and how uh, you know to try to see whether things are being done in that uh, in that domain to ensure that the next generations are going to be more informed and more capable of critical thinking. And now for a short message: if you're preparing to launch your podcast you may be asking yourself what hosting platform to use. I launched Papa PhD on Blueberry because I wanted a professional service that would interface with my WordPress website, that would robustly broadcast Papa PhD to all platforms, and that would allow me to grow my podcast in years to come. If you're starting a serious podcast project, do consider one of the first podcasting hosts out there offering state-of-the-art services, including IAB certified statistics based on years of experience in the podcasting space. So go to papaphd.com forward slash blueberry, that is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, or use the promo code PapaPhDBlue in one word on the Blueberry website to unlock a one-month free trial of the platform. And now, back to the roundtable. Now, uh, Joana, Monica is tackling a very challenging problematic, which is making sure scientific information to do with SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 reaches a public as wide as possible. And um, I'm seeing a comment here on Facebook. Brenda Reyes-Tomassini is saying a lot of the decisions uh, made by the government of Puerto Rico are not made by scientists uh, regarding coronavirus. And I see Monica is agreeing. Also, uh, one other thing that Monica is trying to do is to do all this in a language and a format that is adapted to all groups, cultures and identities across a large population. Now, uh, Joana, in your case, being responsible for the science communication within an engineering faculty, what has the impact of the pandemic been on your work and on the faculty itself? Well, the first thing I'd like to say, well, it's uh, the, the political decisions have to be made by politicians, not by scientists, but they have to be science based. So that's the role of the scientists to give the knowledge so that politicians can make the best decision possible based on the best information. That if you do the wrong decision, it's not because you don't have the science, it's because you don't want to make the best decision. So let, it's, it's not up to scientists to do politics. That's the politician's job. Uh, in regard to my life, well, I, I'm, I'm 
my life has changed very much because for the first couple of days, it was really smooth because we all came home. My kids came home. So for a couple of days, it was like, okay, I can do this. But then kids started having school at home. So that's challenging. And then as a working family person, I have a lot of work to do. I certainly have a lot more work to do at the house and with the kids. And also because regarding my work, my workload has increased a lot. Although I work in engineering faculty, if we don't deal with, with life sciences, and so we are not so much um, committed into explaining uh, COVID to, to people, but rather engineers are very much, okay, I don't want to stay home. I want to do something to help society tackle this problem. So we had everybody at Technico doing something. They were either doing medical shields with 3D printers or doing disinfectants to, to take to hospitals or they, they, they started doing the kits because you need, to, you need to collect the samples to do the testing because testing, we, we got to a point that we need testing. We need a lot of testing because that's the way you know it, how many how many infected you have and those are symptomatic and so forth and so we needed two things we needed ways to get the samples out of people and ways to test large so we have one lab doing the testing the actual testing and the, the, the rt-pcrs and we have another consortium in which technico is involved that we constructed the, the kits to collect the samples because they were not available in Portugal. We could not import because there were other countries that were in, in, in much in worse state in Portugal. So they had they, 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 they had the kits and not us. So we had to build our, our own kits. So engineers were working a lot. They were doing so many things. And also some, some uh, informatic engineering students, they come up with a video game to help kids know how to do, how to deal with co the coronavirus, what are the security measures, what, and, and also the, the pharmaceutical engineering students, they come up with a, a, a game, another game that is being distributed in schools to help kids uh, um, know what's their level of, of knowledge. So this all means that as a, a head of communications, I wanted to put this information out for everybody and also, when we locked down the university, because we have 12,000 people in our faculty, we had to be very clear about how to communicate the, the lockdown. But now we are opening up. And opening up is way more challenging than just locking down, because lockdown, you just close down the doors and you send everybody home. Now we're opening up slowly, and we have to have a lot of security measures, because 12,000 people, that's a lot of people, so we need to think very clearly and have a very clear strategy on how to do that safely, and also to commu communicate that strategy very clearly so that everybody knows what's happening, because of two reasons because people need to know the safety measures, but they all also have to feel safe. I don't know in your countries, but now we are tackling this problem is that we closed down everything for over two months. We said, everyone stay home, don't go out. And now we are saying we can start to go out and people, well, some people are very happy in going out too much, but most people are really afraid to take a public transportation, to go to work, or how to deal with going to work. So there's a lot of work to be done uh, on science communication and on communication of risk communication to people. So I've been working a lot. It's true that uh, <laughs> there, there was a lot of emphasis on, and I'm going to say it like this, 
because it's a, the right word on kind of uh, instilling fear into people to make them stay home yes. and now the opening up to take out this this fear and this defensive attitude that also will need to be science backed yes uh, and i agree Sci scientists will have to be uh, maybe not on the forefront and we might talk about that later on but uh, instructing what messaging should be uh, shared with people it's 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 a big challenge i imagine for for you know, policymakers and politicians and uh, it's it's a very good point Actually, out of curiosity, Monica, uh, at what stage of things are you seeing uh, things happening in Puerto Rico? Uh, is is it still ramping up in terms of numbers? Uh, is the lockdown still uh, complete? Uh, well, complete. The, the the recommendation for lockdown, is it still uh, going on? Uh, yeah, so there's still a curfew until mid-June. Um, yesterday, the reopening of, of businesses They moved on to, to an advanced phase, even though, you know, Puerto Rico doesn't meet the criteria um, for reopening. It doesn't meet any of, of the criteria for, for reopening. And, you know, the testing system is not appropriate. The contact tracing is not yet in place after three months um, almost. And um, there hasn't been a decrease in, in number of cases. I mean, The data, there's a lot of issues with the um, reliability um, and transparency of data in, in Puerto Rico. Um, and so, you know, in, in my opinion, we are just opening blindly, mainly due, you know, following economic pressures and, and not really um, being science-based. No, yeah, there's no science-based reason. Okay. No. I think a lot of uh, countries and, and, and regions are experiencing that and uh, have this feeling that ec economy has to uh, resume and, and that's a hard thing to balance for sure. Yeah, I mean, science doesn't happen in a vacuum. And, and of course, as, as Joanna said, you know, I agree, but scientists don't make policies like they inform policies. And, um, you know, it is the responsibility of, of elected officials and, and people in government to listen to the scientists to to make those policies and so it is important that uh, to understand that it doesn't happen in a vacuum and there are other aspects of other societal issues that need to be taken into account it can't just be about public health but regardless things should be evidence-based and of course there are economics there you know there is science in other fields or social sciences that can be used to inform these strategies and and they're not <laughs> Yeah, it's a strange situation in many, in many aspects, uh, but uh, I feel that the last few years have seen a tendency towards having economic goals in front of everything, and we're seeing it again in this situation, and there's a lot of pressure to reopen, and uh, it's, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit uh, concerning that in places where things are not flattening and, uh, and there's no reason, the pressure is there. But again, I'm talking uh, as someone who is not a politician and I, or an economist, and uh, I don't really have the full grasp of the impacts of staying closed longer. I do, you know, when think, I think of what's happening in Brazil, I do uh, feel for the people who are back in contact with the virus that might end their lives. <laughs> it's, it's a bit distressing uh, in that sense. Joana, I had a, a last question uh, for you in this part which is uh, about um, faculty. You, you, you said that labs are scrambling to find solutions, build things. It's an engineering faculty for sure. Is there anything happening in your faculty in terms of uh, 
of the communication aspect or not so much? What do you mean? Uh, if, if uh, I don't know, scientists have been called to be on shows, on TV. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, they have been uh, called to, to talk about their work. I'm remembering one of the, the centers, they, they, they've built a risk map. They do natural resources and stuff, and they, they, they got at the map with the numbers of the infections, and they tried to understand the distribution and the risk of infection. So now they're working with the authorities of health in Portugal, helping them devise which are the riskier areas so they know where to act more severely in order to to contain the infection they've been asked they've been around talking about their science a lot and we in the communication office have been helping with that and we have always they come up to us and we say we have this project and we help them get that project out um, to the public And we have also arranged for a website where we collect everything that we are being done. And uh, well, regarding Corona, that's... Uh, that's uh, and I want to ask uh, Adriana a question, but just before, uh, I just wanted to ask you because it's an engineering faculty. Uh, do you know if there's been any projects in terms of uh, tracking software? You know, there's been a lot of questions. Yeah, they're about... working on that. They're working on uh, on apps for that. But the, the, that in that regard, there has been a lot of discussion here on the media and uh, between the scientific community and with the state, which is uh, the the tracking devices. Are they are they more useful than dangerous because there's the, the dangers of, of, of your personal data is the government collecting uh, your personal data yeah on the ethics around it and the data protection of course so we have to we need we really need scientists to help us and guide and also politics because in the end it's a political decision but it has to be as I said before based on the best science and the best knowledge possible For sure. I, I'm very curious to see what happens on that end. Of course, there's a lot of uh, worry about uh, privacy. Uh, and uh, um, I imagine, well, in, in places like China and, and uh, I imagine Korea also, they've been pretty good at that, uh, probably because of the experience they had also before with MERS. But it's something that in our societies, I don't think it's going to be so easy to implement. But it's interesting to see how the scientific community also has you know, I started thinking about those questions and thinking about, okay, how can we create a solution that's secure, safe, and that will help epidemiologists and, and, and uh, to, to see what's happening, to see how the, the disease, and, and to stop the disease from spreading as fast as it is. Uh, thank, thanks, Joanna. Uh, now, uh, Adriana, I know the situation in the universities, namely uh, the University of California, and, uh, and I, I just want to remind the listeners that the opinions of the people at this roundtable table are uh, their personal opinions. But I wanted to ask you, uh, because you, you are uh, in the policy domain, you see what's happening uh, in terms of universities from another level, from the policy level. Um, I know also that you've been pretty busy lately also uh, with all that's been happening uh, in, in the university universe <laughs> uh, with the pandemic. Uh, but I would like you to describe uh, to us the impact that COVID-19 and the pandemic has had on the U.S. academic landscape so far. Uh, what impact do you and other policymakers foresee that lockdown may have on research? Okay, thanks, David. So that's, it's a big question. Um, there's a lot of aspects. So I'll just start by talking about generally, if you think about the value of the university, which is 
research, education, public service, helping the community. So it really covers all of these aspects. And in particular, for what we were talking about, what it means for somebody to be a scientist in the times of COVID, because you are doing research, but I think we have to keep in mind sort of the community angle as well. Um, so in my position, we're um, looking at essentially showcasing the value of research on campus to representatives on the Hill through different events. So we've had to um, definitely shift our events to virtual meetings with staffers on the Hill. So that's been interesting. Um, being sort of at the nexus between academia and policy, um, there are concerns related to what will happen, whether universities will open in the fall, what are the ramp-up ramp costs, um, whether they will be open, whether social distancing will be part of that, or uh, there's a lot of var variation across universities that, um, from what I've heard in terms of who, who will open and what that looks like. Um, financially, it's a concern in terms of what the ramp up will look like. Um, the research also, obviously, there's much more funding going to COVID projects. So there's also the question of what the research, actual research will look like when people go back in terms of being able to continue their work or whether they'll actually shift to more COVID type of things. Um, and that also obviously affects the students and postdocs who are in those labs as well. Um, I think one positive that has come from this is um, there have been a lot more collaborative work between um, basic researchers and those in public health, for example, or topics around pandemics and things like that. So it could potentially um, lead to more collaboration in the system in the future. Um, and then the sort of the last part of this is turning to grad students and the workforce in general. So obviously they're unable to do their work now because they're at home. So there has had to be a lot of creativity in terms of how do we maintain their education, um, teaching virtually creative methods to teach and uh, sort of um, help them continue to build their professional development. Um, there have been virtual defenses, graduations, uh, all kinds of things, which is sad, but um, everyone is adapting, I guess. And um, I think one of the questions is also obviously a lot of people are applying for jobs and thinking about where you know grad students and postdocs will go, whether this will affect their ability to stay in science or not. So I can imagine that that might be demoralizing if you're not able to work and you might think, you know, maybe I'll pick something else. And so it has a, a potentially larger effect in terms of the workforce and the scientific system overall the fact that um, all of these young, promising young scientists are not able to do what they're trained for. Um, so I think, um, and I think kind of to look back to the beginning, I think it's important to think about how we're also training scientists to be successful in policy careers or to inform policymakers as we've discussed and use their expertise uh, in that sense. And so I think, um, I think it's interesting that to think about policy also becoming another um, career for them uh, because they are obviously able to kind of showcase their um, research and the value of what they do in society. So that's another thought of um, sort of how will they sort of link what they know outside yeah, of the uh, I was actually going to ask you about the students for sure, and uh, but you went there yourself. Uh, I imagine there's a lot of uh, sadness for people who, uh, who have these graduations that are now uh, on Zoom maybe uh, and they, they don't, you know, they don't get to wear the, 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 the regalia they don't uh, you know they don't get to live that experience in that same way so it's it's kind of if this generation 
uh, who's either starting university, because there's also those who wanted to start their studies now, right? Or to start their their graduate studies, who are now in this kind of limbo of what's happening? Are we going to be able to go? Or is it all going to be Zoom? And then teachers, professors, you know, scrambling to learn how to teach uh, in this manner. Um, I think those are really, really uh, important points. And I imagine, uh, and from what I've been seeing, there's a lot of um, ingenuity. You know, people have, have been having a lot of ingenuity on how to really quickly uh, adopt these new um, media to and to bring something of value to the student body. Uh, Joana, do you have uh, in Portugal an, an idea or a you know kind of a, a picture of what's happening on that side, the the student body, or is everyone having virtual classes? Is everything you know rolling well, or uh, what are the challenges, or what are the really cool solutions that have appeared? Well, I'm not giving classes this semester in the university that I'm working in. Um, everything has gone online. And they have gone through a lot of effort to understand if it was going to work. But one of the problems of all going online is, well, this is spectacular. We can teach long distance, but we have the, the, the practical classes, the lab classes. It's not possible to do long distance with quality. And then there's another problem that the long distance classes, I can see that also with my kids, not just in university, it came to, to, to it dug the gap between classes because there are many people that don't have the money or don't have the means to follow classes with quality long distance because they don't have computer or they don't have quality Wi-Fi or they don't have a room big enough where they can be alone. So what I think is going to happen, and there's one thing that we are very worried and we were trying to tackle that problem, is that addressing students with financial uh, needs because those will be very, I, education will not be granted for all and this is a university is a problem but it's also a problem in earlier stages of education because not all my kids are under 10 and not all kids under 10 have parents that can get them computers or tablets or printers and earplugs and everything they need to do their classes quietly and with quality. So I think on one side, it's spectacular the way we have adapted to long distance, doing the classes online, doing evaluations online, changing everything, using the all the techniques and all the tools available possible. But there's also the problem that we need to address and we need to address very, very, very together and very frontally. Do not forget this because it will increase inequalities. It will increase inequalities, the long distance uh, learning. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's a good point. And I've felt this here. Uh, even teachers, uh, elementary school teachers, not all of them have the same like uh, laptop with a webcam or whatever. And then, you know, different parents around me have had different experiences of all of this whole COVID uh, uh, lockdown of having no resources to, to find a a curriculum for their kids or some of them are very structured because the teacher is on zoom and has phone calls etc etc no it's it's uh, it's a very very good point in part two of the roundtable coming up next week we go a little deeper into what role academics and scientific organizations can play and are playing in a situation such as the covid19 pandemic so thanks for listening and be sure to tune in next thursday I just want to take a moment 
to let you know that you can help me end the show by leaving a star rating and a comment on your podcasting app. If you want to go a step further, go to patreon.com slash PhD now and become a supporter. For the equivalent of a coffee per month, you'll be helping me immensely with the recurring costs of hosting and producing the show. Again, thank you for being a true fan. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests. Music